everyone. Welcome to this episode of Where Does Your Journey Stem From? hosted by yours truly, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we have a wonderful researcher joining us from the University of Vermont, Bryn Loftness. Let's welcome to the stage, Bryn. Hey, Bryn, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me here. Of course. We're so excited to have you and talk to a little bit about you. So Bryn Loftness is a PhD candidate in complex systems and data science program at the University of Vermont and a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow. She works in the Neurobotics Lab and MSense Research Group at the UVM Complex Systems Center, developing machine learning and digital phenotyping algorithms. The data she works with are primarily biological, and behavioral signals derived from on-body and off-body sensors, health, and or contextual records. She also works remotely with the Sabeti Lab through the Broad Institute, specializing in behavioral phenotyping and digital epidemiology projects. In this role, she collaborates significantly with the MAPS Mobility Analysis for Pandemic Prediction Strategies Center at Brown University. Bryn engages in a wide variety of research across her collaborations with an overall vision for developing novel computational methods supporting the betterment of community, physical, and mental health across populations. Bryn most pro prominently contributes to evolving cutting-edge research broadening the availability, objectivity, and precision of early childhood mental health screening across pre-adolescent populations. She is passionate about addressing the gap in current pediatric and family care by engineering toolkits for behavior and physiology-based disorder identification and envisions the application of these new technologies within the space to revolutionize the modern mental health systems. That's so powerful. Starting when children have the highest chance of long-term success following identification. So Bryn, again, welcome. Um, your research is just tantamount and so needed, frankly. Um, but let's actually rewind a little bit, and I want you to give us a little bit of an introduction to you, yourself, your background. Tell us a little bit more about Bryn and what drives you. Yeah, yeah. Well, first and foremost, thanks again for inviting me here today. Um, I'm really excited to be here. And just a little bit more about me. I know that was a, a really wonderful introduction. Thank you for that. Um, but a few things that I always like to share is I'm, I'm also a human. I love to play soccer and to create art and to, to spend time with friends. I think that's really important, especially for balancing all of the, those academic stresses and those research endeavors of mine. So I always like to add a little bit of my, my actual human side into the mix of that. Oh, I love that. And I think um, all too many times the humanity of science is detracted and um, many people I know, get into their field with respect to um, a, a personal story or sort of how they got directionality to it. Um, I know I, I did. Um, and so I guess my first question to you is, you know, what drove you into STEM? Yeah, that's a, a great question and very fitting for this, this podcast. Where does it stem from? Um, and really my journey with computers and with engineering started when I was really young. Ever since I can remember being able to climb up on that chair and, and sit on the computer, I was doing so. I remember playing games and, and dinking around with even Microsoft Word and Publisher, writing stories or organizing things and leveraging the utility of these different machines to improve efficiency, to improve 
um, just everyday life, I was always so intrigued by that. And that passion and that excitement really brought me into um, high school and into college where I was considering, what's my degree? Where do I want to fit into this, this space? And what will fill my cup for the rest of my life, ideally? And, and that took a lot of contemplation and thinking about different things and talking to different individuals within the field, doing internships within industry, but also doing internships within academia. And through that, identifying that I really enjoy being involved with health and the betterment of health and using computers and computational techniques to identify the intricate ways the human body responds to stressful situations or how we might be able to find unique signatures of stress or mental health concerns or conditions before someone can even speak to those abstract emotions and being able to identify those signatures and identify ways that we can um, better human health without necessarily even involving humans telling us what's wrong or telling us what's going on really intrigued me because it meant new ways to optimize what we do, how we live, how we communicate with others, and how we can live long, happy lives. So that's just a, a brief way of how I found computers and how it led me into specifically health and mental health and physical health. That's really cool because I think, um, no, I know actually, uh, we had a guest on a couple of episodes ago and she, her parents bought her a microscope for Christmas and that was her introduction. So I think having that sort of hands-on um, engagement is, is apropos. So you mentioned two things, um, which I want to kind of delve in a little bit deeper. So you mentioned people and internships. So let's start with people. Um, usually there is a person or a couple of folks that have some significant um, impact on you. And so I wonder if you could comment or maybe elucidate a little bit um, about those people. Yeah, yeah, I love that question. I think um, thinking about who are those big influencers in your life that help you not do exactly what they're doing, but find your niche is so special. It's such an, a fantastic bond. And I definitely have a, a whole tree, a whole academic tree and industry tree of those individuals that were mentors and teachers and friends that led me to where I am. And um, they started early on. And so the first ones I can think of are back in high school. I went to an engineering magnet program, um, which was at a, a local high school right in town, but really focused on engineering education early on and curriculum that surrounded what it might be to be an engineer so that we could have that early exposure. And I had a, a wonderful teacher, um, John Bayer, who, who was just fabulous in making sure that we found what was interesting to us. I remember there was a certain section on civil engineering and I hated learning about trusses and all of those angles. And I just didn't think spatially in that way. And he always was like, met me halfway. So that's okay. That's not your, your specific niche, but we can find your niche. You can continue exploring it. So I think having people that will recognize that certain areas aren't going to be your forte and continuing to encourage you and saying, this domain is a lot broader than that specific area you don't like. And I had 
mentors like that throughout my career. In college, I had really awesome mentors, Dr. Michelle Melanthin and Dr. Um, Carl Castleton, who were both really, really wonderful mentors in that they helped me get hands-on. They made sure I had funding to get access to wearable sensors that I could begin tinkering with, even before there was a curriculum that supported a lot of wearable sensor development at my university, and making sure that I could facilitate any sort of research or creativity that I really wanted to, to use was, was so empowering for me. And then I, you know, I could continue talking about and, and name dropping all of those special people in my life. And I want to definitely recognize that there are so much more than those three that I mentioned that were influential to my path. But I want to make sure I'm hitting the second part of your question too, of, of what are those hands-on opportunities that I had within industry and within academia um, that were really special. And so starting back in high school, when I was at that, that magnet program for engineering, I knew that I liked health and I knew that I wanted to be in this space to, to influence um, quality of life. But I also knew I loved math. I loved computers and I loved not necessarily seeing blood every day, which is, is one aspect of the health field that I knew was not my forte. Um, and so in high school, I had the awesome opportunity that through Genesis Works, a program that's in a variety of cities across the United States, I could do a year-long corporate internship at Target headquarters within their data center. And there I identified a lot of really awesome individuals that helped me understand what it's like to work within the corporate sphere, what it's like to work in industry as compared to academia. And that really prepared me in college to do other kinds of industry internships as well as academic internships, knowing I already had some insight into the ins and outs of what that might be like, what the responsibilities were and what the workflow looked like. And understanding my own mm, fit in the space, I noticed that I really liked academia and research and, and getting more hands-on in that way um, rather than being in industry. And so during my college experience, I did two different National Science Foundation um, research fellowships for undergraduates. They're called REUs. I really recommend them if you're listening and have never heard of them. They're really, really wonderful. And there I met even more mentors and learned more about machine learning and about how we can use data to drive betterment of, of daily life and how we can use technologies in new and creative ways and what's on the cutting edge. And it was just so exciting. And that's how I really knew that research and going to graduate school was my next step. And that's what fit for me. And I loved how during those same programs, I met other people's people that didn't have that experience and noticed that wasn't the place for them. They didn't like that environment. And so that's a little bit about how the hands-on opportunities that I had and the individuals that I had surrounding me led me to my now career within graduate school and, and leading from graduate school after this. What I really appreciate <clears throat> and what you were speaking to is that a person and opportunities both um, acknowledge that you were delving into something that you had you didn't necessarily know everything about, but you wanted experience in to determine whether you liked it or didn't like it. Um, and I think that that is so critical. Um, you do not know if you do not like something unless if you actually live and breathe it for a little bit. Um, 
And so I think when you were talking about civil engineering, I think pretty much everyone has a topic in which they just don't like it. Um, it just doesn't fit with them, um, not only for personality or what they want to do long term. Um, and so I, I totally appreciate that. I also very much want to double plug your NSFREU statement. I did an REU as well. Um, and there's two things, again, that it, it either allows you the opportunity to kind of step out of your comfort zone with respect to the university that you are ingrained in and go somewhere else, see someone else's mentoring status. Um, also, it allows you the opportunity to expand your horizons on okay, can I go and do this sort of research? Do I like it? Do I not like it? Or it allows you the opportunity to go and really do a deep dive on some um, research um, that you really want to focus on and then see, okay, can I actually see myself doing a graduate program in this? So um, double double plug there. Um, and then I love your, your discussion around corporate. Um, I think it, it's not a fit for everyone, but also the fact that I think all too many times um, people who emphasize uh, or people who have a ma major in STEM don't necessarily have that experience of, you know, how do I actually translate this sort of knowledge base into corporate America? Um, and there is a, 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 for lack of a better word, a je ne sais quoi about it. Um, so talk to me a little bit about your transition then from undergrad to grad. How did you select your lab? How did that, you know, how the big how? Yeah, that's that's such a fabulous question, and I I actually love answering this question because I think it was such a a beautiful time in my life. I had a wonderful undergraduate experience, even though that is when the COVID nineteen pandemic hit and it really interrupted um, the academic flow and what it meant to to be a college student during that time. However, I still were, was able to leverage a lot of the opportunities and connections that I made during my undergraduate um, to explore what is the next fit and knowing that I really want to continue my research, where do I start? And so the first thing I did after graduation was actually do a little bit of a gap program. So I moved to Norway for about seven months to do some outdoor sports, to think about what I love to think about my research. And I continued working remotely during that time, continuing what I was interested in, in continuing my work for my previous REU, um, really continuing to hone my computational skills while applying to a wide variety of graduate programs. I actually ended up applying to 11 different PhD programs across the United States and abroad, and really found that there's so many that could have fit my interests. I felt there were so many that could have filled my cup and would have allowed me to do the research that I wanted to do. And it was just selecting the best one, um, the one that would progress me towards my end goals and that also fit my personality. I think that's a, a one of the biggest things to consider when I was considering which graduate school was going to be the best program and which lab was going to be the best program was who am I going to be working with? They, you probably heard the saying of like, the team makes the job more than the job makes the job. And I could not agree with that more. I've heard a lot of juxtaposing stories about how, what it's like to have different styles of mentors and making sure you had a good mentorship style for you. And in doing my different interviews with different graduate programs and different labs, it was an interesting position to be in because once you get to that interview, 
you're often interviewing them rather than the other way around. And I think that's a great mindset to have going in is once you're in, once you've got the qualifications, it's just finding your right fit. And I remember speaking to, I, I had a top three set of schools and top three labs that I was really interested in and wanted to compare. And then I had this really wonderful meeting with my now mentors, Dr. Ryan and Ellen McGinnis. Um, they, the flow of that call and the flow of us sharing what we are interested in, what we are curious about, what we wanted to research, more than just the methodologies, more than just I can code in XYZ languages and do XYZ math. It was, what are the big problems that you want to fix in this world or want to address or contribute to in this world? And that's how I ended up choosing UVM was honestly because those two individuals in the lab and the research and the things we were curious about fit so well together that I knew no other institution was the right fit over that school. And I had actually never even been to Vermont. I, I knew of Vermont as this small state in the US East. And I had lived in a few different spots in the US at that point. I was comfortable with moving, but I said, okay, it's time to take this leap. It's time to go there, share our curiosities and see what we develop together in this lab of like-minded individuals that have similar skill set, but also are good people. And I think that's what brought me into graduate school, how I found UVM. And obviously there's been many years now of, of fun research that we've shared together and, and really positive outcomes within the domain, but also in my own life, I've had fun. I've had a lot of fun. So that's just a brief story of how I found UVM and, and how I found my place within the Neurobotics Lab and the M-Sense Research Group. What I love about um, what you just said in particular was I, I took the complete opposite approach in all, in all honesty. So I took a gap year between undergrad and grad. And the reason I did that was I did not do any research. I didn't think about research. I didn't think about publishing, nothing. And um, what I learned probably two, three months into that gap was that I missed it. And at that point I said, okay, this is, I guess I gotta go back. So um, I, I think gap years or two, I think having other experiences that direct you back to what you truly want to do um, are very powerful um, and um, should be pursued in all honesty. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And I, and I totally love, um, I have heard horror stories. I myself have a quasi horror story, I guess, about finding the perfect fit, um, not only culture, but also research, um, uh, not only mentoring, but also the lab, you know, who are your, your colleagues, um, you know, if you're in a if you're in a team that you just don't mesh well with, it's no matter how great your research is going to be, it's still going to be a daily slog. Um, I hate to say it, but you know, what are your what are your career aspirations? Yeah, yes, and it's such a wonderful question because I think, especially in graduate school, that's such a dynamic thing to think about because of the amount of trajectories that you could walk. Um, there's there's nothing but opportunity and excitement and, and places to go in my perspective, especially depending on how you wanna translate your research. One thing I often see in graduate school is you can either finish your dissertation and never think about it again, or you can really plan your, yeah, exactly. And I think that's 
a, a totally fabulous thing to do. And then I think there's a whole different route where you make your dissertation essentially into a, a career path and focusing on translating it. And that latter is really what I'm focusing on. We have a, a small company that we're developing, Ryan McGinnis, Ellen McGinnis, and Dr. Nick Cheney and I. Dr. Nick Cheney is another one of my fabulous advisors at University of Vermont. And we're trying to take what I'm doing in my dissertation and in my research, package it up and make sure it doesn't stay in the publication or in the journal, that it can actually find its, its space in the point of care setting in, in truly helping individuals and in translating from that space into the real world. And so on that note, I'm focused a lot on entrepreneurship. I'm focused a lot on, on what it means to start a startup, especially if that startup is in a domain that's a little bit hard to access, such as digital psychiatry, which is a very new domain. It's a very new space. And so that's part of my career goals. But I think one of my largest career goals, if I had to wrap it up into one saying, is just always continuing to do outreach and making sure that I'm always communicating with the populations that I'm trying to help. No matter if I end up in industry or if I end up continuing with the startup or end up in academia, I always want to continue communicating with individuals that I want to help, individuals that are trying to learn more about computer science or in computational technologies or trying to find their path into what really fills their cup and lights their flame. That's a passion that I, I don't think will ever go away because it's it's gotten me so excited and so passionate for so long. And so regardless of where the career ends up, I think that's where I really want to be is just continuing to always do outreach and continuing to contribute to these really, really important technologies and domains and, and people. So, yeah. I think contribution is, is key. Um, some people have a particular focus. Some people have a particular endpoint that they see themselves. Um, but I think having a theme behind where your journey is, um, is, is really important. I like that. Um, and to transition then into your research, um, I just love that you're in health tech, biotech, um, and real world evidence. I mean, you know, having sensors that are immediately receiving data directly from the patient instead of extrapolated um, is so important. Um, and there's a variety of different ways that that can be garnered. So um, tell us a little bit more. I mean, obviously we, we introduced you with your bio, but um, love to hear more. Yeah, thank you for asking. And as someone who loves her research, I love also chatting about it. I think it's fun to share what I'm curious about and to see if other people have overlapping curiosities. And so boiling it down to, to the crux of what I do each and every day, it's taking signals from on-body and off-body sensors. On-body sensors, you can think of you know, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or even a muscle sensor or a glucose monitor that you're wearing, any sort of on-body sensor. And then combining that with signals that might come from off-body sensors, those sensors might be Wi-Fi routers to show kind of where you are in a building or who you're communicating with. That has specific applications within epidemiology and disease tracking, which is really important for community health as well. You've got all of these different layers of health and all of these different ways to combine insights from all of the different signals crashing into our world each and every day, all of the time. 
And so taking in those on-body sensor signals, off-body sensor signals, combining them to understand how are they changing in time together or how are they different or how are certain individuals acting or physiologically behaving or just behaving in general with their, their movement or how they're interacting with each other kind of clustered based on their background or based on if they have a specific condition or if they are um, exhibiting any sort of specific symptomology? Is there obvious clusters within individuals? Or are there is there enough signal that you can take away all that noise from all of those sensors and find some signal amongst the noise from those signals to create some sort of predictive algorithm that's helping us identify risk or identify the specific condition or underlying um, patterns within those signals and using those insights to actually translate change. And so specifically one aspect of my research, my main dissertation research at UVM is looking at using on-body sensors for kiddos between the ages of four and eight years old and leveraging the signals from those on-body sensors while they go through a set of structured behavioral tasks. What that means is we have them perform things that might happen in daily life, such as giving a speech or walking into a dark room or even playing with bubbles. And then we look at how they respond based on these very structured, administered behavioral tasks and see if there's any trends in how they're responding to potential threat situations or potentially stressful situations or potentially a really fun situation like playing with bubbles and laying on your back and poking them and popping them. And are there trends among those individuals and kiddos that relate to their underlying psychopathology? And so we have them go through the gold standard diagnosing procedure. And that procedure often takes about 10 to 12 months on a wait list to get access to. Uh, fortunately, within our research program, we have a clinical psychiatrist on our team. And so we're able to go through that gold standard and start to create models that only require five to seven minutes of structured mood induction tasks that can predict with similar accuracy those gold standard diagnoses. And what we're really trying to do with that model, that information, is it's, it's really hard to be on those wait lists, especially for a parent who's worried about their kiddo. And so if we can do additional screening on the front end in point of care to make sure we have some understanding of risk for specific diagnoses or specific symptomology, knowing that oftentimes they start to develop during those really early years prior to a child being able to speak to those abstract emotions and contributing to that longitudinal view of childhood mental health leading into adulthood, knowing that unaddressed and unintervened mental health conditions can be very costly, it can be very concerning, and it can be detrimental to your long-term success and happiness and well-being, connecting with others and connecting with yourself. And so finding ways to create automated systems using non-invasive sensors that can happen right in the clinical care office, that's our goal. That's really what we're trying to translate. And it's to just to get better insights. It's to help those parents that already have way too much on their plates. And it's to help those kiddos that can't necessarily speak to when they may be struggling or if they feel different or out of place. And so that's one example and application of my, my specific technologies that I do um, and the computational techniques of digital phenotyping, of finding those trends and identifying ways to predict them or cluster them so that we can give those insights to people that need them and can leverage them for, for the betterment of care.
my my next question was actually going to be why the ages of between four and eight, but you answered that, which was um, great because I, I was thinking, okay, uh, you know, that's pre-adolescent, pre but it's, you know, after toddler years, impressionable. So um, I, okay, that makes total sense. So I guess seeing that you are developing thinking around and establishing diagnoses followed by symptomology. Um, you know, there's there's the sensor data, but then there's also the data as you, you were talking about clustering, there's social determinants of health. Um, there is, which I, I guess could either be population dependent and or self-reported. And then there's also the real world data of actually looking at, you know, what do these kids charts look like? Where have they, like, what are their CDC levels? Can you comment a little bit about those two factors? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really wonderful to bring up, um, especially when talking about where models like this have their place in the world. Um, and I think considering we have all of these external data sources and we've got ways that parents currently report mental health concerns, and we aren't trying to replace those mechanisms. We're trying to build on and complement those mechanisms. So in identifying common symptoms or common um, behavior presentations that parents are seeing and combining that with our models of what we're seeing in behavior or physiological changes during these mood induction tasks, we can create more accurate models, models that rely on objective data and caregiver report data or teacher report data. And so those those data streams definitely play a huge role in our research and how it can be translated for maximal information gain in real life settings and point of care settings. Oh, I love that. And I didn't even think about um, education uh, because I think at, at that age group in particular, I mean, kids are what with their teachers more often than they're with their parents, I think statistically. Um, and so if you think about sort of behavioral modifications or behavioral reporting, you have to have direct contact with the, the teacher because they know um, exactly what their um, uh, students are doing. Um, so what's your kind of current hypothesis? What What's keeping you up at night uh, current research-wise? Such a fabulous question. Um, so what is keeping me up at night? I think just you can never code fast enough. You can never find all of the insights fast enough, especially when you're trying to think of, okay, if this system was in place, this is how many people we could help per year. This is how many people we could get some sort of baseline for, and this is how it could impact their lives. So I think what keeps me up at night isn't necessarily the hypotheses. We've got a lot of hypotheses. We've been doing this work. Ryan and Ellen started this work during their dissertation. And so, continuing to progress it, continuing to make sure our models are robust, evaluating on new populations, making sure that we, when we consider how it can translate to an actual clinical care setting, we have to consider FDA and how we're gonna go through a regulatory process and how we can make sure our system is robust to that and shows that we're not biased or that we're not creating models that are gonna eventually be dangerous or or detrimental to a child's mental health, which is the opposite of what we're trying to do. And so I think thinking of how we can progress our research, making it robust, continuing to show that we're having consistent, repeatable results, which is what we've been seeing over the past many years, 
and making sure that we can continue honing in on those biomarkers to make it the least invasive, most easy procedure that can happen and continuing to do all of that relatively quickly. In grad school, it's very different from industry where in industry, timeframes are on like week to month turnarounds. In grad school, that is not the case. Turnaround times are on many months to a year, especially considering the peer review process being so long and arduous that making sure that we're moving things forward on kind of industry standards, but within academia is, is definitely a challenge that we're facing, but is also exciting. It's motivating. It shows that it's it's worthwhile and it um, keeps me up at night just to keep coding and moving faster and moving forward so that we can continuing to can continue to help people. So that's that's something that's been a challenge, but it's also really inspiring right now. Clinical research never moves faster than molasses. Um, I think that's, you know, I mean, there's the IRB aspect, there's the data aspect, there's the people aspect, there's the reporting aspect. I think that is something that many people, um, you know, it's one thing when you're working with machines every day, it's the same thing. And it doesn't really matter when you're working with people. It's just not every day is the same thing. <laughs> Um, that has to be taken into consideration even when you are coding, you know. Um, so we're wrapping up here, but I do always like to end with a question around, um, you know, if you were to interact with yourself from 10 years ago, um, what would be some words of wisdom that you would impart to your past self um, that you kind of wish you knew then um, that you do now? I love that question. Um, I actually think about that, that change in time and how we evolve as individuals quite often. Um, how I think about myself 10 years ago or even more than a decade ago was as such a, an evolving young adult um, and, and honestly adolescent who was just trying to find her place in the world and figure out her interests and, and, and stay stable but on, on chart and on path. And now I see myself as someone who's really found what my trajectory is, where I want to go, what are the populations I want to address. And so I, I think back often to if I could could speak to young Bryn and say, just just keep on doing it, which is what I did, which is really wonderful. But continuing that encouragement. And I think as as young individuals that I mentee or mentor often um, that that are my mentees and that I mentor is what I should say is I, I always try and tell them and inspire them to just keep on doing it keep trying things out if it's like trusses and civil engineering and you don't like it let's just switch over and do something else let's keep trying to find what fills your cup and then just keep going with it and see where it evolves and see how it blossoms into something that makes you so happy and makes you so proud and that's that's really what we want to find is something that that fulfills us in ways that it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like a, a life goal. And I think that's something interesting that research has given me and that I hope to to provide for my mentees is keeping them on on track to whatever their goal is, even if it is trusses and I can't really help them on the, the technical specs, whatever it is that they want to do, um, making sure that they just continue on route. No, I really like that um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think I think people do need to just keep trucking. 
Um, there's something to be said about resilience. There's something to be said about grit. Um, that probably would be what I would tell myself. Um, so I, I love that. Um, and with that, Bryn, I thank you so much for your time, um, as well as um, telling us not only a little bit about yourself, um, but also your, your research and then some words of wisdom. I think that is, that's tantamount. So I very much appreciate um, your, your time um, and energy and best of luck to your entrepreneurial endeavors. I mean, that's just, I speak for myself in saying that that is just amazing. Um, and it's so fruitful and such a learning curve. Um, so with that, everyone, uh, thank you again. And thank you to our listeners. And don't ever forget to ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye, everyone.